John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word today. Let me begin this morning by taking just a little bit, a few moments, to talk just about the importance of John the Baptist, the Baptist or better yet, John the Baptizer. I, I actually had somebody <laughs> say, well, well, you know, John was a member of the Baptist church. <laughs> so, okay, get me through this, Lord. <laughs> After hearing reports of Jesus' ministry, there was an encounter in the life of Jesus with some of the disciples of John. You can find it in both Matthew 11 and Luke 7. John is in prison. And apparently some doubts had arisen in his mind as to whether or not Jesus was in fact the Messiah. I mean, think about it. He grew up 
being taught and believing that the Messiah was going to come into town riding on that big white horse and he was going to run Rome out of there and reestablish Israel as a nation. Jesus responds in that instant in much the same manner as his Nazareth sermon in which he defined his mission. He told those disciples, go back and tell John what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. These final words to John's messengers provide a definition of the Messiah that we need to accept. And they should be words of warning against every generation who would try to remake Jesus in, in its own image. I mean, I don't, I don't care if we're talking about liberals or conservatives. We cannot remake Jesus into an image that fits our political purposes. And those who were looking for the Messiah to recreate the days of David and Solomon and to deal with the Romans were disappointed by Jesus' vision of the Messianic future. Others were bound to be just as disappointed when Jesus also rejected their view of the Messiah. They wanted to make him king at one point. And he left their midst. And... If you are with those who happen to be looking for something to happen to the nation of Israel once again, you might want to go back and reconsider and reread the scriptures. Perhaps John also wondered where was the fiery preaching of the coming of the wrath? And, and there's some who want to hear that same kind of fiery preaching today no Jesus said his ministry is about teaching and proclaiming and healing and bringing spiritual freedom to those who were oppressed and bound but think about this after John's messengers leave Jesus praises John in the highest of terms his questions to the crowd are really rhetorical. Did you come out in the desert to see a, a reed that was being swayed by the wind or, or somebody dressed in fine clothes? You know, obviously not. You didn't come out here for that. You came out here because you had heard and you saw and wanted to see this prophet that everybody was talking about. And so Jesus tells them, yes, John is a prophet and he's more than a prophet. He's the one Malachi wrote about. Malachi 3.1. And as a matter of fact, no one born of women is greater than John. You see, in terms of being God's servant, no one's better. And yet Jesus went on. And he said that in terms of enjoying God's favor, John was the one who is least in the kingdom. And the one who is least is greater than he. So, well, how can that be? Well, here's how it is. We cannot appreciate the privilege that we have 
as being the ones that God is using to establish his kingdom. Now. Not future. Now. Jesus said to those that were questioning, why, if demons are being cast out in your presence, the kingdom is breaking in upon you now. John the baptizer is one of the most important persons in the New Testament. Did you know that he's mentioned 89 times? And it was John who had the privilege of introducing Jesus to the world. And did you hear his introduction as we read it? Behold the Lamb of God. And not just once, but he repeats it, the same announcement the next day. In the Old Testament, the question was that of Isaac. But where's the lamb? They knew that their scriptures called for a lamb. Where's the lamb? In the New Testament, the emphasis is upon what John said. Behold the lamb. He's here. And for you and I, as Christians, go to the book of Revelation. If we've been loyal and trusted, then we get to join a choir before the throne and sing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You see, the people of Israel were very familiar with lambs for sacrifice. Exodus chapter 12 verses 3 to 13 recounts how at Passover each family had to have a lamb. And if need be, they were to invite others to join with them so that every bit of the lamb would be eaten. Nothing left over. During the year, two lambs a day were sacrificed at the temple. Plus all the other lambs that were brought in for personal sacrifices. But those lambs were brought by men to men. Those lambs couldn't take away sin. And by the way, the word that John uses for lamb is a special word. In the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament Greek version of the, uh, the, they call it the LXX sometimes, that word is found 101 times. And in 82 of the 101, it is a reference to sacrificial lambs. There are only four uses of the word in the New Testament. And two of them are in the text that I read. Only twice outside of John is that word for lamb used. And in both of those cases, it's referring to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Acts 8.32 speaks of the one who was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before her shearer is silent. And the other one is in, in 1 Peter 1.19 where he says that the precious blood of Christ... A lamb without blemish or defect is given for our sins. 
So I think in the light uh, of this, we're probably correct to say that John the Apostle would be happy if you and I, as his readers, would take John the Baptizer's witness to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And take it to refer both to the end time Lamb. Remember the Lamb and the the Lion would, would come, speaking of one, Jesus to be the judge of unrepentant sinners. And then also this idea of the atoning sacrifice for sins for those who believe that Jesus accomplished. Perhaps perhaps John believed that John the Baptist actually knew more than what he was saying because uh, that was the case with both Caiaphas and Pilate with statements they made. But in verse 29 that we read, Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world. Now there are a couple of other places in the fourth gospel where Jesus' significance for the world is implied. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Or maybe the idea in John 4.42 where the Samaritans come to recognize that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. Not just the Jewish people the expectation that that sacrifice would reach out. There's another emphasis that needs to be, another aspect that needs to be emphasized, and that comes from what I shared last week as the major theme of John's Gospel. We recognize that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but also the Son of God. In fact, Jesus will be identified as the Son of God nine times in the Gospel of John. And at least 19 more times simply as the Son. It was so important to John, the apostle who's writing the text, that it was a part of his purpose statement that we shared in John 20, 21. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And John the baptizer is one of six people named in this gospel who gave witness that Jesus is God. John the baptizer, Nathaniel, Peter, the blind man who was healed, Martha, sister of Lazarus, and Thomas, the one we often, I think wrongly, label as uh, the doubter. I, I, don't, I don't see... Thomas is doubting. I see Thomas as simply wanting what you and I would want. If we saw somebody who died in a horrible death on a cross, wouldn't we want a little bit of physical evidence that he really had resurrected? I mean, Thomas hadn't seen him yet. But when he sees him, He gives a confession that's even greater than the one of Peter's. My Lord and my God. And never goes up, according to Scripture, to actually touch. 
but bows in worship. And, and that number, that perfect number seven, I said there are six, but we could actually move into the perfect number seven if we want to add Jesus' own statement because frequently he said, Ego I me, which was the words that God said to Moses, tell them, I am, Ego I me, sent you. Now, our text for today makes up two days in the life of John. But actually, more importantly, it's two out of six days. As John begins this gospel, he's pre providing, I think, a creation of account for the new creation that is happening in Jesus. He begins with the same words that Genesis 1-1 begins. In the beginning, in RK, in the Septuagint, and also here in John's Gospel. In RK, in the beginning. But instead of in the beginning God created the world, he says in the beginning was the Word. And we know that the Word was there in creation because God spoke all things. The Spirit was hovering. In fact, it says in the beginning Elohim, not Yahweh. And Elohim is plural. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all there as one in creation. And in John's Gospel here, there will be six days specifically brought out before we get to the seventh day. And you know what happens on the seventh day? Jesus is at a wedding feast and he creates something new out of something very bland. He creates wine out of water. Just like God had created the world out of chaos and out of water. So there is a parallel with the creation week of Genesis 1. Um, and, and so I, I titled my message this morning, Witness and Testimony. Why? And that's where I want to go. And as we start digging in, I want you to notice again how John the Baptizer, near the end of our chosen text this morning, said, I have seen and have borne witness. He had witnessed something. He saw the Spirit descending. And on no one other than his younger relative, the son of Mary and Joseph. Or so he thought, Joseph. And when it said, John said, I myself did not know him. I believe it meant in the deepest sense as the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, it would have been hard in that day for him not to have known that John was a relative. I mean, mom would have told her story about going to be with Elizabeth and, and all of that. Now, this, this knowledge is, I didn't know that my cousin was the one. But the evidence was placed before him. And John, just as John in his gospel is placing the evidence now before us. What he, re, what he witnessed resulted in four important truths for us to consider. 
And the first is that Jesus is eternal. Now, you might notice that this this verse is usually put in parentheses. Like I had it up here on the screen. It, it probably in your text is also in parentheses. And it actually balances out the second paragraph of this first chapter. Where we're told that, God, that John was sent by God to bear witness to the light. And in this paragraph, John explains the content of John the baptizer's testimony. He says, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's an important announcement. He uses the, the phrase to cry out. And that's only used three other places in John's Gospel when it's giving to us important declarations. Uh, you'll find it again in chapter, twice in chapter 7 and once in chapter 12. John refers to Jesus as the one who comes after me. Referring to the fact that Jesus began his ministry after him. Now, this fourth gospel, the gospel of John, doesn't mention a period in which the ministries of Jesus and John, or excuse me, it, it mentions a period in which those ministries are overlapping. But essentially, John's ministry, the purpose of it was preparation for the ministry of Jesus which was going to follow and so in that sense John could say he comes after me and even though John's ministry preceded that of Jesus notice that John emphasized but he surpassed me because he was before me now again I believe that John knew I mean, John knew who Jesus was as his cousin and would have known, hey, wait a minute, John was about six months older than me. And so with that knowledge, you know, we have to, we have to realize that what John is saying here is that he realizes that Jesus somehow, somehow preceded him spiritually. And I think it's what John is referring to here with the prologue as the pre-existent life of Jesus as the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John as well as John the baptizer are testifying that Jesus is eternal. But secondly, another important truth that I think we need to note is that in Jesus was the fullness of grace and truth. Grace. Do you have an acronym for grace? Some people use frog. Forever relying on God. I, I don't know why, but... Cindy, I heard you... God's riches. <coughs> 
God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, grace is God's favor and kindness granted, conferred, given to those who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. To me and to you. Now think about it. If God dealt with us only according to truth, none of us would survive. Rather though than dealing with us strictly through the law that came by Moses, Jesus deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus met all of the demands of the law. That's why he could say, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so now, with Jesus having fulfilled all of those demands of the law, God is free to share fullness of grace with those who are willing to trust and be obedient and loyal to Jesus. Not just know that he's Jesus in their heads. I mean, that's something even the demons knew. You see, grace without truth would be deceitful. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. And truth without grace, condemning. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in one of those households. I grew up in a household that was very legalistic. That if you weren't doing things the way they understood things to do, you were lost. And often pointing fingers and looking down their snooty noses. So in verse 17, John is hinting that a whole new order has come in replacing the Mosaic system because the Mosaic system had been fulfilled in Christ. Third, John the baptizer also knows and wants us to know that he has witnessed sufficient evidence to already know that Jesus reveals God to us. One author has pointed out that as to his essence, God is invisible. And yet man can see God in nature as well as seeing his mighty works in history. But that doesn't allow us to see God as a personal being in and of himself. And so Jesus reveals God to us for, as the writer of Paul said in Colossians, he is the image of of the invisible. Now I go back to one of those songs that just flashed in my head. That one about Kodachrome and giving me my Icon camera. Or Nikon I mean. That's, that's a word. That's why they chose that for the name of their cameras. Because the word is, it's, a, it's an image. It's a visual presentation. And the writer of Hebrews would say that Jesus is the express image of his person. So when John says in verse 18 that Jesus who is at the Father's side has made him known, it's a word that means to explain, to unfold, to lead the way. So Jesus explains to us 
interprets for us, demonstrates to us who God is. And we simply cannot understand God apart from knowing His Son. Jesus would tell Thomas, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Finally, the fourth truth that John reveals to us is that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is also the Son of God. After John's interrogation by the priests, Levites, and Pharisees, the evangelist tells us the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the fourth gospel does not record as the synoptics to the baptism of Jesus by John. But the coming of Jesus mentioned in this verse is actually not His coming for baptism because that's implied in verses 32 and 33. John's already witnessed the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus. He heard that voice in some way come out of the heavens and it was sufficient for him to believe that Jesus was in fact the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And he actually begins to explain how John came to know that and it says that I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Say, well, why would seeing a spirit like a dove come down and remain on somebody say, well, this is the Messiah, God's Son? Because they knew their Old Testament. They knew their Bible. Isaiah 11.2 prophesies, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. So the evangelist John also emphasizes the fact that the Spirit remained upon Jesus because that's one of the ways the text highlights the special relationship that Jesus had with the Spirit. We're going to see this again, by the way, in chapter 3, verse 34, where John tells us that God gave the Spirit to Jesus without limit. The one who sent John was God. And he told John. How? We don't know. I don't know. doesn't say how John knew that that was God the Father revealing this information to him. But God told John that that very thing would happen. And then he witnessed it. Now, in Jewish belief of that day, the Messiah was to be the bearer of God's Spirit. So John was being told, this is how you're going to identify the Messiah. And John the baptizer concluded his testimony concerning Jesus with the words, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. A title that's very important in John's Gospel, though it's not a common designation for the, for the Messiah among first century Jews, it was nevertheless used in that way. And this reference, as I said, 
is the first of eight references in the fourth gospel which state either explicitly or even more that state implicitly that Jesus is the Son of God. And once again, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the Apostle John wants us to know that the baptizer's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God is a part of His overall purpose in giving us the Gospel. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And I think it's significant. I am, I am more and more looking at parallels that happen in Scripture and I think it's significant that the title, the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God stand in apposition as virtual synonyms in that verse. So here's my challenge. I think it's crucial for us to see and to realize that from His birth, and especially from His baptism, that Jesus was anointed. That's what the word Messiah means. That's what the word Christ means. Two different languages, but meaning the same thing. He was the anointed one. Anointed for what purpose? A purpose that we don't stress enough. Anointed to be the king of his kingdom. And that's why the idea of a Messiah dying was so hard for them to understand. But he was anointed for a very special task. Even John, the baptizer, was unsure and sought clarification. Thomas, accused of doubting. And that's okay if we think in terms of seeking physical evidence, had those questions. So the why of my message, I think is rather obvious. Without accepting Jesus as the Messiah, the God, the Lord of our life, as my kids taught me, 24-7, 365. Not just on Sunday mornings. Without accepting, we have no promise of eternal life. There's no promise of eternal life given to people who know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's not where the promise is. The promise for eternal life is for those who are willing to be loyal and trust and obedient to that fact of having Jesus as their Lord. And the path we should take? Testify to your own experiences. You don't have to be a theologian. What have you witnessed? Any lives changed? Any medical situations? Unexplained healings? I've had doctors, surgeons say to me, I don't know what kept your son alive. And when I said there were people praying all over that he'd be protected until you all found out what was wrong, that surgeon said, that's as good as any answer I could give you. 
You see, God is good and He is still at the work of changing lives. And if you know and have witnessed any of that change taking place, that's a testimony that we need to give. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for our time here looking at your word. And just, Father, help us to understand that that Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet who lived for a while and gave a message. He wasn't a martyr. He was the Son, your Son, who came and died so that we could live. The Lamb, without blemish, sacrificed, so that the shedding of his blood could bring forgiveness for our sins. That he brought grace, but not grace without truth. There is no Savior without Lord. Help us to accept that challenging way of of life. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is going to be Anywhere with Jesus, and we'll sing two hymns of it. Let's stand together and sing. Anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. Anywhere he leads me in this world below. Anywhere without him, dearest joys would fade. Jesus, I am not afraid. Anywhere, anywhere, fear I cannot know. Anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. Anywhere with Jesus I am not alone. Other friends may fail me, He is still my own. Through His hand He lead me over dreary ways. Anywhere with Jesus is a house of praise. Anywhere, anywhere, fear I cannot know. Anywhere with Jesus I am safely gone.